Let's begin by listening to a quote from an English preacher in the 1900s. He said this, an ambassador is not a man who voices his own thoughts or his own opinions or views or his own desires. The very essence of the position of the ambassador is that he is a man who has been sent to speak for somebody else. He is the speaker for his government or his president or his king or his emperor. He is not a man who speculates and gives his own views and ideas. He is the bearer of the message. He is commissioned to do this. He is sent to do this. And that is what he must do. The context of the sermon then in the New Testament is to be the word. Preach the word. That being interpreted means the message of the Bible, the message of the scriptures. I have received this. It has been handed to me. I do not bring my own thoughts and ideas. I do not just tell people what I think or surmise. I deliver to them what has been given to me. I have been given it and I give it to them. I am a vehicle. I am a channel. I am an instrument. I am a representative. These were the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the UK pastor of the 1900s, uh, who was a faithful pastor to preach the word week in and week out. And this is what we're going to be consider, considering this evening, is the pastor's role from the pulpit. We're going to consider a passage that should govern the church's entire worship service. The music, the preaching, the reading time, anything else should be influenced by the passage that we're going to look at. And specifically, though, I want to address the pastor of the church. When he stands up to speak, what is he to say? By implication, if the spiritual leader is to speak a certain way or say certain things, what are you to say as you minister? Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll read through 4-2. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would clear our minds now of any distraction. Lord, that you would cause us to think deeply and intently about what your word has to say for us this evening. Lord, open our hearts to receive it, not just in our minds, but into our very person. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is now the second letter that Paul had written to Timothy. The first letter was Paul's instructions for how the church was to operate. If you're in a community group, then you know this. You're studying this uh, through 1 Timothy. Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus, so Paul wrote him the first letter to set things straight, to give instruction on how church was to happen. But this second letter takes a bit of a different flavor, one that's really a personal letter to Timothy to be strong. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, Timothy was facing opposition. He was facing hardship. And he was growing weary of his work. And in the meantime, Paul's about to die. In chapter 4, Paul says his time is approaching to depart. Therefore, 
Paul leaves some final exhortations to the man Timothy to be strong in the Lord. This was to be the man that was going to carry the baton of gospel ministry in Paul's place. It's with this context in mind that we come to the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. In this section of this wonderful letter, Paul is emphasizing the word of God. He's reminding Timothy that his power does not come from his own strength. His power isn't in his own thoughts, in his own, his own mind, his own passions, but it comes from the word of God. It's not up to him to convince or persuade people. He isn't to share his own ideas. Instead, he must rely upon God's word. And so that really takes us to our first consideration this evening, and that is that all scripture is inspired by God. Here we see the power of the word being demonstrated Paul's really first encouraging reminder to Timothy is that Scripture comes from God himself. This Greek word inspired in your Bible, if you look at verse 16, is one that Paul may have very well invented here. The word is theonoustos, and it comes from the word theos, which is God, and noustos, which is breath. And literally it means God breathed. The exhaling of God. The point is this, is that all scripture is the very breath of God. It is of divine origin. Paul says that all or every scripture is inspired by God. And so although at this time the New Testament was not yet completed, this passage conveys a truth that applies to all of scripture, stating that every scripture is inspired by God. Or in other words, anything that would be counted as scripture is inspired by God. This means every Old Testament passage in verse, every New Testament passage in verse, every individual part and the whole is inspired by God. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul affirms the New Testament writings as being of divine origin as well. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, he says, "...the things which we, the apostles, speak..." Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So here he affirms that his own writings and the other apostles' writings were inspired by God. The apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2.20 says this, he says, Know this first of all, or of first importance, that no prophecy or proclamation of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit of God spoke from God. Here, Peter, again, is claiming that any prophecy or proclamation of Scripture is indeed from God. It's God's words given through men, superintended through the Holy Spirit. How do you suppose Peter knew this? I'm just kind of putting myself in Peter's shoes. It's Second Peter, and I would make a conjecture that he knew this because it had happened to him. He had already written First Peter. He recognized that his own first letter was not himself, but it was the very Spirit of God moving him along to record what God so desired to record in his word. Listen to this, Jeremiah 1.9. Listen to what God says. God says, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Scripture writers together make 4,000 claims to be writing the word of God, and yet not one time do they claim a special position of honor for themselves. Why? Because they knew. They knew that they were simply the mouthpieces of God. They were the instruments by which God was recording his word. 
You see, God in his wisdom chose to use human authors with different personalities, different life experiences, different backgrounds in order to communicate his word. He wrote through a variety of genres in order to express his truth in different lights and in di- for different scenarios. Think about it. In Scripture, you've got narrative. You've got the epistles that are loaded with doctrine. You've got the poetry of the Psalms that are so comforting in times of sorrow. You've got prophecy. You've got apocalyptic literature. God in his wisdom wrote 66 different books in seven, seven genres over 1,500 years in all different parts of the world, and he did it through 44 men. However, an interesting note here is that it's not that the men themselves were inspired, right? It's not that they were some special guys that everywhere they went, there was inspiration flowing from their hands. No, in fact, did you know that Paul wrote two other letters to the church in Corinth? Right? We have two letters recorded in Scripture, but he wrote two other ones that aren't. Was there godly advice in those letters? Good advice? Wisdom? Yeah. But was it the Word of God? No, it wasn't. Because the Lord has sovereignly ordained and protected and put together his Word and delivered it once for all to the saints. Scripture is the sword that God himself uses to do his work. As the author of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. One commentator tells an incredible story of a man in Brazil named Signor Antonio. This man had a New Testament that he took home to burn. When he returned home after having lit it on fire, the fire had gone out and the Bible was not burned. So he took it and he lit it again, but the book would not burn. He opened the interior pages to try to catch the pages on fire. And the passage that he opened to was the Sermon on the Mount. His eyes connected with the text and he was caught. He quickly put the fire out and continued reading through the night. And just as the dawn was breaking, he stood up and he declared, I believe. Friends, do you see the power of the word of God? It is God-breathed. It is God-ordained. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. And His Word does not return void. So then, in summary of this first point, this is the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And if we had time, I would demonstrate that the inspiration of Scripture leads directly to the inerrancy of Scripture, which leads to the authority of Scripture, which leads to the sufficiency of Scripture. But to this, we'll have to suffice it to say that God's word is timeless truth. It has proven itself through the ages to be without error, having the power to change lives and being sufficient to direct God's people to all things pertaining to life and godliness. So that's why Paul says in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. But let me ask this question. What is it good for? What does this inspiration accomplish? Well, look at the text again. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Here we see the profit of the word. Being that scripture is from God, we know that the direct implication is that it is profitable. In other words, God's word is helpful for the human to read. Why? Well, here's the thing. God did not just speak to hear himself speak, right? 
He didn't communicate directly with the birds. He didn't communicate directly with the flowers, but he communicated to mankind in the language of mankind because the message was intended for mankind. He communicated directly to man. Have you ever stopped and thought about this? Okay, God spent 1,500 years to deliver to us the message regarding how he wants us to live for him. God, in his wisdom, ordained that his communication would take place through a medium that would last for thousands and thousands of years. That medium was written language. So in the Old Testament, you've you've got it written in Hebrew, which takes advantage of the picturesque language of the times in order to display the poetry and the narratives. In the New Testament, you've got the Greek with its precision that's able to record doctrinal truths and instruction for how the Christian is to live. The point is this, God has recorded his word in the perfect place, at the perfect time, in the perfect language, so that it would be profitable for mankind. Okay, so it's profitable, but for what? What specifically is it profitable for? Well, first, the word of God is profitable for salvation. All you need to do is look one verse prior to 16 in first Tim, or 2 Timothy 3.15. It says this, Paul writing to Timothy, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says here that the Old Testament or the sacred writings pointed to the need for a Savior, and in turn, Timothy had placed his faith in Christ through the Word. But specifically, what was this knowledge that was contained in Scripture? Well, it was a knowledge that gave the wisdom, according to verse 15, that led to faith in Christ resulting in salvation. The Scriptures lead a man to salvation. 1 Peter 1.23 echoes this by saying, You have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God brings the message of salvation by the spirit of God and causes one to be born again. Have you been born again? Well, looking again at 2 Timothy 3, in addition to the word bringing about salvation, there are also immense applications for the life of the believer. The text says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Between these four applications, friends, we can conclude this. The word of God is profitable to use in all areas of the church. Teaching, preaching, discipleship, fellowship, counseling, leadership training, children's education, church restoration, sanctification. The word of God is profitable for every area in the church. The operations of the church, therefore, should be infiltrated with the word of God and Just pause for a moment and think. There is no way that a preacher is justified in standing up at a pulpit and talking about his own agendas, politics, the social gospel. This passage clearly states that the power is in the word. The word is what is profitable for the people. Therefore, that is what the preacher is to preach. He's to preach the word. Now, specifically, though, this verse lists four things, and the first is teaching. Teaching the truth. It's impossible to believe what you don't know. It's impossible to follow or to live a certain way if you haven't been instructed in it. So the Word of God is profitable to instruct believers how they ought to live. 
As Joshua 1.7 says, Be strong and courageous. Be careful to do all the law of Moses my servant has commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. Likewise, God says uh, on the flip side in Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Friends, don't let that be us. I don't want that to be us. The word of God must be taught. It must be learned from us. Next, in 2 Timothy, the word of God is also profitable for reproof. Reproof is this. It's rebuking in order to bring about conviction. While teaching is laying out correct and proper doctrine, reproof is calling out false doctrine, false thinking, false action. Reproving is done with the goal to bring a person to confession and repentance. Therefore, as Paul addresses the pastor Timothy, he says that the word of God will be his aid in both teaching and reproof. Next in the list, in verse 16, we see the word of God is profitable for correction. And correction means to restore something to its original condition. The word literally means improvement. So while reproof is the negative aspect of the change process, correction is the positive that focuses toward ongoing action moving forward. Reproof leads to correction in the believer's life. And all of this, Paul is saying to Timothy, is to be done through the word of God. All of this can happen through the teaching of the word of God. Lastly, at the end of verse 16, it says that the word of God is profitable for training in righteousness. And this specifically was a term that referred to child rearing, raising up children. But in the same way, do not Christians need to be brought up in the faith? Right? That language is all throughout Scripture, that you're newborn babes, that you've been born again, that you are children in the faith. We need to be brought up. We need to be trained in righteousness in the same way. And the goal of this is to bring the Christian to maturity, to take those who have a need for only milk and to bring them to maturity so that they can handle the meat of the word. In summary, then, the word is where the power is. Therefore, it is, friends, profitable for you and for me. Next, we see the purpose of the word. Paul says in 17, he says, the word is profitable for, for reproof, correction, um, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now keep in mind that Paul is speaking to Timothy. And what we see here is that the purpose of the word is to equip the man of God to better serve the Lord. In fact, this phrase, man of God, uh, is a technical term found primarily in the Old Testament, and it's actually 70 times in the Old Testament. But I want you to listen to the context of where it appears. Exodus 33.1, the man of God, is in reference to Moses. Samuel, uh, in 1 Samuel 9, 6 and 10, is called the man of God. Shemaiah, who prophesied against the wicked king Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12, and also in 1 Kings chapter 1, listen to this story. This is, <laughs> this is fascinating. Uh, so the, king, the king's captain and his 50 men came down below a hill, and Elijah was up on the hill, and they want to go to war with him. They want to battle with Elijah. And the king says this, O man of God, come down. 
Elijah replied to the captain of the 50, If I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. I'm just reading the text. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So apparently Elijah was a man of God. Uh, Likewise, (laughs) this makes me think of... This is probably where John, the son, right? John and his brother, the sons of thunder, got this idea of calling fire down from heaven from the Lord in the New Testament. I wonder if they were reading about Elijah in the Old Testament. Kind of reminds me of some of these gals we have, the daughters of thunder in our group. I won't mention any names. But nonetheless, right? Elijah was a man of God. He was a man of God. In the New Testament, the only use of the word man of God is to Timothy. Okay, and so the conclusion of a broader study of this term is this. The scriptures use the term man of God to convey a man with a message from God who would speak authoritatively on behalf of God. That is what the man of God is. So in our text, Timothy is the man of God. And Paul had invested himself in Timothy to stand and deliver God's word authoritatively on his behalf. Now, I'll remind you of Deontay's sermon a few weeks ago out of Ephesians 4. Wonderful job of teaching on um, the role of pastors in the church. God has given teachers and pastors in the church whose job it is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Well, this is conveying a similar picture, but this time it's focusing on the pastor. Timothy, even as the pastor of the church, the man of God, also needed the word of God. Right? Timothy wasn't above needing the word. Paul's saying, Timothy, you will be equipped to do your end of the deal as the pastor by the word of God. It will equip you to do all of these things as I have called you to do. Timothy was to be a workman unashamed, accurately handling the word of God. And so Paul's desire and God's desire is to see believers grow up in their faith into maturity. And if you look at 17, he says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This word adequate means perfect or mature or complete. Um, And the idea is uh, really being communicated here uh, to focus on the pastor, that the pastor is adequate to do his job through the word of God. Paul says the word is profitable because it presents the man of God, which in this context is the pastor, as equipped for every good work. It equips, it completes, it makes the man capable or proficient in ministering the word of God. It makes him able to meet the needs and demands of the ministry. It equips him for evangelism, for discipleship, for preaching, teaching, counseling, ministering to widows, ministering to orphans. All of these things the word of God equips him for. No, but here's the thing. While this is directed toward the pastor, there are also direct implications for you and for the church as well. Number one, as the church, and listen to this, as the church, you must know what is expected of your pastor. Right? It's one thing if the pastor reads this and knows it, but no one keeps him accountable. It's a whole other story when every member in the congregation knows what is expected of the pastor and they expect that from him. Okay, if, you're, if your pastor's not preaching the word, beg him to preach you, you the word. Beg him to use the scriptures for ministry and be a part of, of making the church a place that uses the scriptures for all aspects of ministry. But number two, and listen to this, if the pastor's ministry is to look like preaching or proclaiming the word of God, 
and if the word of God is sufficient to do these things, then it only follows that the word of God should be the center of the rest of the ministry in the church as well. Therefore, as lay ministers and a functioning member of the body, this verse has implications for your life and your ministry. It's not going beyond the realm of implications of this text to say that in the same way the word of God makes any man or any woman adequate for the good work that he has prepared for them. We know from Ephesians 2.10 that God saves us to use us. And in using us, he equips us with all that we need to do his work through the scriptures. God's word is sufficient to equip the pastor, to equip the people, to speak into all areas of life and godliness for the Christian. Okay, well, moving to the next verse. In the midst of a section on teaching about the word of God, the attention is is somewhat turned more directly to Timothy. This transition starts at chapter 4, where Paul says, I solemnly charge you, Uh, But before giving the actual charge, he adds a few subordinate clauses here pertaining to the command that he's about to give. Look at at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and by his appearing and his kingdom. And here we see the primary person of the word. As Timothy was to minister the word of God, he was to keep in mind the power of God He was to keep in mind the profit of the word of God as it pertains to all areas of ministry. He was to remember the purpose of it in equipping himself and the saints to do the work of the ministry. And now he was to remember God's God's word's central focus, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Guys, this is not just here at random. Paul is not just schizophrenically throwing thoughts down on the pages as sparks are flying out of the pen. There is an intentional purpose for this being here. And I want to submit to you this, that Paul is intentionally calling to mind Jesus in the midst of Timothy, uh, of calling Timothy to preach the word, and he does so to highlight the seriousness of the command that he's about to give. He does so to highlight the seriousness of the command that he is about to give. And here he specifically highlights three attributes of Jesus. First, he says that Jesus, along with the Father, is omnipresent. He says, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. In other words, Timothy was to obey this command as one who was standing right before God. Right in front of Jesus, as if Jesus is standing here. Not in front of men, not carrying out the task just to please men or in front of men, but right in front of God. How would your life be different if you had that perspective that Jesus is standing right there? Because you want to know what? That's the truth. Okay? That's the truth. God is omnipresent. And Paul tells Timothy, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. Secondly, Jesus is uh, at the Father's right hand. Jesus is the judge. He's been given the task of carrying out the wrath and judgment of God. John 5.22 says this, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Christ will be the judge at the rapture. He will be the judge for the believer's faithfulness. He will be the judge of believers and unbelievers entering the millennial kingdom. And he will ultimately be the condemning judge for all of eternity. So Paul, before giving the charge to Timothy, not only brings to mind the judgment, but also the fact that the judgment is imminent. It is the next thing. It is coming soon. 
Timothy was to obey this command and carry it out with eager expectation of Jesus' return. But thirdly, Paul says this. He reminds Timothy that Jesus is the king by his appearing and his kingdom, he says. In light of his judgment, it's appropriate for Paul to mention his second coming. So he says at the end of verse 1, by his appearing in his kingdom. The kingdom of God is already not yet reality, right? We're currently in the kingdom of God, but not yet fully. The millennial kingdom will be the fulfillment of all that was promised. Christ will rule with an iron staff. All will be in subjection to him. And in fact, if you notice from this verse, Paul links the appearing of Christ with the kingdom. In other words, while Scripture does teach that the kingdom has begun or been inaugurated, it is not yet fulfilled. But this passage here in verse 1 directly links the second coming of Christ with his kingdom. So the kingdom is yet to fully come. The truth of Jesus' omnipresence, his judgment, the fact that he is king, were to serve as reminders for Timothy to remember the seriousness of the command and to focus on the word. Jesus is the culmination of God's revelation to man. He is the exact representation of God's nature. He's the anticipation of the Old Testament. He is the center focus of the New Testament. Therefore, Timothy was to remember Christ Jesus as he was going to carry out the command that Paul's about to give him. And following this, what is the command? Look at verse uh, 2. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. He starts the command in verse 1, I solemnly charge you, and he completes the command in verse 2, I solemnly charge you to what? To preach the word. Here we see the prescription to proclaim the word. The charge given in verse 1 was a strong word. It's set in military language. And one commentator said this. He said, It's difficult to see how Paul could have made his charge to Timothy any more weighty. And this charge is followed by the command to preach. Now, specifically, Timothy was to preach the word, right? But which word? What is the word? Well, in the immediate context, if you look at verse 16, he referred to all scripture. In verse 15, he referred to the sacred writings. And so, in all likelihood, Timothy was to preach God's word. In a study of this phrase, the word, in fact, one will find that most often it refers to the whole of Scripture. Sometimes it has an emphasis on the message of Scripture. And within that, uniquely, sometimes it refers specifically to the gospel, the primary message of Scripture. Timothy, therefore, was to preach the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture, and he was to preach the message of salvation that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As he's doing this, he was to rightly handle the word of truth, spending diligent time in order to teach it correctly, 2 Timothy 2.15. And friends, contrast this with what we often see today, right? What do we see in churches today? Is this what we see from our pastors in most evangelical churches? It's not. It's not. There's, instead, there's preaching where a pastor starts in a text of Scripture, but he simply uses it to launch out into his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own ideologies that may or may not have anything to do with the text. There's preaching where there's no qualified man of God to speak with authority, but everyone just shares their thoughts on it. They just pass the mic around. Here's what I think. Well, here's what I think. Well, here's what I think. 
right? There's preaching where there's nothing offensive or confrontational. No dealing with sin. No dealing with suffering. No talking about persecution. There's preaching that just focuses on health, wealth, happiness, prosperity, what God can do for you. Guys, the gospel is offensive. Did you know that? I hope you know that. I hope that you understand the gospel is offensive to your person. Why? Because one of our greatest problems, the greatest problem, is that we are wretched sinners. We are wretched sinners and we are not right with God. We are naturally dead and separated from God. To avoid telling your people about this truth, to avoid telling your people about the fact that God has made a way, he has made a way to reconcile this wretched sinner to a holy and just God, to withhold the good news of the gospel as scripture describes it, that's not love. That's stupidity. That's selfishness. For a great example of how the pastor was to teach and explain the word of God. Flipping your Bibles back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Way back in the Old Testament, before Psalms, before Job, two books or so before Job, go to Nehemiah chapter 8. And follow along as I start in verse 1. This passage just is incredible. Nehemiah 8 verse 1 says this, All the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Verse 2. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood all of these guys who I'm not going to embarrass myself trying to say. And in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, these men explained the law with the people, or explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And key in, if you've zoned out, key in at verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Guys, here is a marvelous example from the Old Testament regarding the expectation of the leader of the people. Let's just review quickly what we saw. In verse 1, Ezra brought the scriptures to the people. In verse 2, he read from the scriptures. Which, by the way, or sorry, that's in verse 3. How long did he read for? It says he read from early morning until midday. I don't want to hear anyone complain about the length of my sermons ever again. He preached for six hours. Right? Doesn't that remind you of uh, when Paul's preaching and Eutychus is in the third floor and it says Paul was going on and on and he went till midnight and what happens to the poor guy? He falls asleep and falls out and dies. Okay, So Paul preached all night. Okay, And here Ezra read in verse 3 for at least six hours, early morning to midday, 
I'm thinking 6 a.m. to noon, six hours. But look, what, look at next. In verse 7, what did he do in verse 7 at the end? It says he explained the scriptures to the people. And again in verse 8, and here's the key, it says he translated it. He gave the sense of the scripture so that the people understood it. Okay? The people didn't understand it at the first hearing. They had to have it explained. They had to have it, the sense of the word explained to them. Guys, that is the role of the pastor to read the word of God and explain it to the people. And you want to know what happened as a result of this? If you read a few verses later, it says the people were weeping because they understood the word of the Lord and the consequences of it. Weeping. Look at the power of the scripture when it is truly received into someone's heart. Okay, It reveals sin. It exposes man for who he is and explains who God is. Further, it provides the way of reconciliation to God in spite of our sin. Ezra read from the book. He translated it. He gave the sense to the people. He exposed God's intent in the text through the human author, not his own thoughts about it. And this is just such a masterful picture of expositional preaching And this, friends, is the exact same thing that Paul is calling Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's return there as we continue. Next, we see the persistence in preaching the word. Paul says this, he says, Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. This command here, be ready, is sometimes rendered be instant. And the idea is that the preacher needs to be constantly ready. He needs to be urgent to proclaim the word of God. Okay, Charles Spurgeon was, a, was known to admire a contemporary orator of his day who was not even a Christian. And when he was asked about this admiration, skeptics said to Spurgeon, how can you possibly admire this man? You don't believe what he preaches. No, Spurgeon said, but he does. Friends, any man with a note of urgency in his voice demands and will receive a hearing from other men. So likewise, the man of God is to be urgent and he is to be ready to preach the word at all times. This leads into the next phrase. It says, be ready in season and out of season. This phrase means that he needs to be urgent or ready at all times. Literally, it came from a word in season meant at the opportune time. So he says, in other words, be ready at opportune times and at inopportune times. Be ready when it's easy. Be ready when it's hard. Be ready when it's popular to preach. Be ready when it's unpopular to preach. Be ready when it's culturally accepted. And be ready when it's culturally rejected. Timothy, you've got to be ready when there is peace regarding the message of the gospel. And you have to be ready when there is hostility and violence and persecution. Timothy, you need to be ready to preach the word at all times, in season and out of season. Be ready. Friends, the ministry is not for the faint-hearted. I haven't been at it all that long, but I can tell you it is not a walk in the park. But listen, the man of God... No matter what season of culture, no matter how difficult, no matter whether the Lord is blessing him or he is bringing him through a hard time, even in his personal life, death, persecution, sickness, illness, the man of God is to preach the word in season and out of season. That is his calling. That is his job. And friends, as you follow your pastors, that is your job. 
Your job is to be ready to proclaim the word at all times as ambassadors of Christ. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Lastly, we see the principles of preaching the word. Paul says in verse 2, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Notice that this list seems to match well with the list of prophets or purposes of the word of God in verse 16 of chapter 3. And this isn't a moot point, but it only further makes the case that the preacher's preaching is to be entrenched in the word of God. If these are the purposes or prophets of the word, and then Timothy is told to preach the word and to do this, 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 and this, and these line up, okay, well, we've got a connection going there. First, he says in verse 2, the preacher is to reprove. And again, this is the same form of the command in verse 16. Here again, reproof refers to a rebuke where someone recognizes their sin and then turns from it. It's correction that's gentler than a rebuke. Reproof. Some versions translate it convict, others correct. And the idea here is that there's a receptivity of change from the one who is being reproved. So then there must be a reproving from the pastor. But next, the preacher is to rebuke. And a rebuke is given to someone who does not turn from their sin. In this case, the recipient uh, refuses to see their sin. A rebuke may very well follow a reproof. And here's the key difference. A reproof is the disapproval of one's action, whereas a rebuke is the disapproval of one's person. In other words, they have done this action so much so and so blatantly so and with a hardened heart to where now that is characterizing their person. And so a rebuke is necessary. In any case, the preacher is to constantly be dealing with sin is what these two commands tell us. He's to call both believers and unbelievers to turn from their sin. Whether it's received or not, the preacher must continue to reprove and rebuke from the scriptures, calling men and women to live for God and not for sin, not for self. That's the preacher's job. But also, we can't just stop there, right? He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And this carries the idea, friends, of encouragement and comfort. Encouragement and comfort. You can't just command in a domineering way and continue to and only talk about sin and only tell people where they're going wrong. There must also be encouragement to pursue a good direction. We can't just take the life right out of someone. You must also encourage in the right way. And all three of these, Paul says this. He says, with great patience and instruction. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So here also we see the requirement for patience and gentleness for the servant of the Lord. Patience or long-suffering, friends, must be the demeanor of the man of God. He's to call people to repentance, but he's to do so patiently and with gentleness. He shouldn't grow irritated. He shouldn't grow annoyed or weary, not fall into despair, but he's to point them in the right direction, exhorting them with patience and instruction. And he's not to do this at the expense of doctrine. If you look at 2 Timothy 4, the last word in verse 2, it says, and instruction. This word instruction can mean teaching, it can mean doctrine, and it refers to the teachings of Scripture or the things in which Scripture teaches. 
As he corrects and rebukes and exhorts, he must seek to do so gently, but it also must be supported with what Scripture says is true. As an example, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preacher I quoted at the beginning, he was known to be a lion in the pulpit, but a lamb out of it. Gentle in conversation, yet vicious when calling men and women to repent from the pulpit. And so it must be for the man of God. So friends, in conclusion, this is the Bible. Okay, This is God's word. These are the words of God. It's not a mystical book. Okay, The book itself is not, uh, you know, you have to protect it. You can't write in it. It's just paper and ink. But through this book, God has communicated a message to you. He has communicated the truth about salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And he has communicated everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness. He has laid out clearly how the Christian is to live. And within this passage, how the pastor is to shepherd the church. Now let me ask, why in the world would a church be about anything else than what the God of the universe has said? It just doesn't even make sense. We have been given everything we need. Therefore you, your church, and your pastor must be about the word. Here's the thing. Man's stuff just ain't that good. Right? Our thoughts, our ideas, our systems, it just ain't that good. But God's word is sufficient. It has laid it all out clearly. And so here's the takeaway. Number one, be informed about the pastor's mandate to preach the word and expect it from him. But number two, model your life and ministry after the truth that we have seen here tonight. God's word is inspired by God. It is profitable for all things. Model your life and your ministry after his word. Be a person who is all about the word of God. Be a person about the word of God. Let me close with 1 Peter Chapter 1, and then we'll pray. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says this. <clears throat> For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, indeed, your word is sufficient. Lord, it endures forever. It is inspired by you. It is authoritative. Lord, it is It's all we need, Lord, to know how to please you, to know how to live for you, to know what is sin, to know what is righteous living. Father, for the believers gathered tonight, I pray, God, that you would resolve in our hearts that we would be men and women who follow you, Lord, who love your word, who go to your word daily, God, who needs your word, who long for it. Just like we can't eat for a single day without going hungry, Lord, would that be our mentality of the word? God, would our pastors preach the word? And would we be men and women who model our life and ministry around the word of God? God, for the unbelievers, we must collectively pray for them, Lord. Lord, I know they're here. 
God, I pray for the unbelievers that you would open their eyes to the truth of the Scriptures, God, to the truth of the fact that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of men. Lord, and that by faith in Him, we can have forgiveness, reconciliation, Lord, peace and joy and eternal life with you simply by placing faith in you. Lord, thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.